Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Action, okay? We can pay for any damages. Let's just jam our fucking heads in the bosom of history and just... Hello, and welcome to Still Watching, a weekly television podcast from Vanity Fair. I'm Chris Murphy. And I'm Richard Lawson. We're here to discuss the eighth episode of the HBO series Succession, America Decides. Every vote must be counted. And later on, actor Justin Kirk, who plays Jared Menken, will be stopping by to talk about his new gig as Succession's leader of the free world. But first, a quick recap. Since Logan exiled Newsroom Pizza, ATN's election night is filled with bodega sushi, uh, cocaine, and a very stressed out Tom. Greg, do not... Put any more lemon water or wasabi in his eyes, okay? Shiv finally tells Tom that she's pregnant and got the response every expecting mother wants to hear. Like, is that even true? Or is that like a new position or a tactic? Or what? Ballots get roasted in a Wisconsin fire, so Roman works overtime as Mencken's spin doctor, despite the protests from his siblings. Let's call it. On what precedent? By by what authority? Uh, by the power of me, the CEO of Waystar, telling you what to put on the telly box mouth, people. Kendall discovers Shiv's collusion with his Nordic nemesis. I could help. Shiv's fucking uh, us, right? right? Wow. Shivy? No. No, 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 no. I fucking asked you some real questions, Shiv. I wondered why you looked like a goose trying to shit a house brick, you piece of dirt. And then things go south for democracy as Greg has the task to call the election for Mencken. Yeah, I'm just I'm pressing the button. Or I'm not even pressing the button. I'm, I'm asking them to prepare to press the button. Right, and all that does is just, like, launch a nuclear attack. Chris, I want to get to... Jared Mencken, our future president, later in the episode. I would love to never get to him. (laughs) Well, right. (laughs) We could avoid it, but we can, apparently. But in the broader sense, did this election mean anything if a news network could just kind of call it ahead of time for somebody, you know? Well, doesn't that mean everything? That that's how the state of politics and media and politics and power in our country works, is that these bumbling fools ultimately our lives are in their hands in a way. I was so scared watching this episode. One, like PTSD from, you know... Horrible. From 2016 specifically, even 2020, but, you know, just the anxiety of the candidate who could destroy the country getting elected, going through that in real time. And I will say, this is not like a critique, but... It was sort of foreshadowed at the beginning of the episode when they were like, well, Jimenez is, you know, he's leading. It's, it looks like it's going to be Jimenez. You never want to hear that. You never. That's what they were saying in 2016. There's no way that Trump could win. The, the Democrats wanted Trump to be the nominee yeah. because they thought there was no way he would win. And I was at an election party that mm-hmm. night and I pulled a friend aside into the kitchen at, you know, maybe 
two, three hours into the returns, and I was like, I think he's going to win. He was like, what? No, come yeah. on. I was like, no, just look. Like, look at these little things happening. And this is kind of what they recreated on this episode, albeit a fire in Wisconsin that uh, seemed to have burned up some ballots. Indeed, um, which we have to get into. But also was at an election party and had to leave because there were some people who didn't seem that sad that Trump was Uh-oh. pulling ahead. I was like, this is my exit cue. You don't hang out with Ivanka anymore, though, do you? No. <laughs> no. Oh, my God. We lost, t- we lost touch in the last couple of years, you know, when she moved to Miami. But <laughs> that is to say, yeah, the PTSD of it all was so, so vibrant. And I think one of the best scenes of this episode that sort of captured what a joke the <laughs> system that we live in, the political system that we live in, is when... Uh, that nice man got wasabi in his eyes, and Greg pours lemon seltzer LaCroix right into his yeah. eyes. And these are the people, and nobody knows what to do. It's frenetic. It's literally felt like something out of the Munsters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Completely physical comedy. And then, like, five minutes later, these are the exact same people who are deciding who the president of the United States is. And that was so shockingly hilarious and so dark that they contained those multitudes and that we are ultimately at their whims. And I think there is enough in the episode with minor characters being like, well, there's going to be, you know, months of litigation and all that. We don't know for sure that this is, you know, a done deal. But what this episode does, I think, well, but also maybe sometimes a little on the nose, but I think maybe on the nose is the only way you can do this at this point, Mm -hmm. is show that like so much of this I mean, or particularly in the Trump era, certainly the Bush era, like, is about storytelling and the momentum that comes from a narrative. And what ATN is at least able to do is give Mencken this story, which, well, they called it for me first. And who we don't really know who burned down that voting center in Milwaukee, you know, and watching the behind the scenes people who are largely people we have spent now four seasons with Mm -hmm. really exercising the might of their power, but also of their cynicism. Yes. Shiv says at one point... Ken. I don't know. No, don't. Don't get cynical. It's, it's not, not cynical, no. It's just... What's happening is happening. What do you think any of you have been since <laughs> no, this show since started? day one. You know, and but here they are, finally in the driver's seat, referencing Logan here and there, what would he do? Mm-hmm. And Shiv th- seems to think that Logan would actually kind of hold off on the call. And the brothers are sort of self-interestedly arguing, uh, no, 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 like he ended wars that he started. He did all this. He was a titan. But this is, you know, we've watched them now for a couple episodes previous to this, wield their newfound power in ineffectual, blundering ways. You know, one little sort of investor summit goes okay for Kendall, mm-hmm. but like otherwise they're just firing yeah, indiscriminately. And not the consequences aren't yeah. that huge. Like obviously there's money on the line, but those numbers, their projections they're specific to their business. To their business, right? Yeah. They do not affect the populace at large. Right. 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 And to see that their damage, their own childhood trauma, all of their baggage has the potential to I'll say it, destroy democracy. Yeah, yeah. That's how high the stakes were after Logan died, right? And that now these, as we've said this whole season, none of these kids have it. None of them have the no. character. This episode was so clear that even Shiv, ugh, like the integrity, the character to take their own bullshit, their own personal lives out of the equation and do what is best for the nation, it was just impossible. And now it looks like we got a fascist president at least for three months or so. Chaos descends. His supporters, who sound like a violent bunch, will just accept this narrative as the truth. Capital riots, that's the vibe. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that with Roman kind of just shutting down Shiv every step of the way by kind of mocking her. And it's like, unfortunately, once people like that have a foothold, that sort of childlike rhetoric or whatever works well because it's like, what are you supposed to say in the face of someone saying, yeah, yeah, no, it isn't. Shut up. Yeah. You, you know? can't argue with that. There's yeah. no sort of intellectual basis that is just completely... False flag, false flag. What, is she yeah. supposed to go to Milwaukee and prove that it wasn't? To the Milwaukee of it all. And I actually was a little bit surprised, but also not re-being on the nose where 
Jimenez is like clearly like the good guy and Mencken's clearly the bad guy. And I thought maybe they would say like Democrats are also sort of shifty and shiftless, but it didn't really seem that way. Were we supposed to take that like it was clearly like the Menkenist who burned the ballots? And, you know, Roman says like, oh, it might have been Antifa. But I feel like it was pretty clear that like Shiv and her team are the good guys and Roman and Mencken are the bad guys. Yeah. I don't know if I'm maybe oversimplifying that, but I thought that maybe would have been slightly complicated, but it seems like pretty cut and dry. I mean, I think we've certainly seen at least a little bit that high-ranking Democratic operatives, they're compromised to an extent, yeah. sure. But I do think that there was something jarring about the episode in that it was so sincere coming from the creators of the show. Yeah, it was Which really was like, okay, earnest. here, you know, three episodes before the end is like our genuine political belief about who these people are, who mm-hmm. you've been watching and kind of laughing with. Yeah. In a way for four seasons. Complicit. Um, Are we complicit? Well, yeah. (laughs) It's like maybe this is what the whole show has been pointing to the whole time. Oh, look at these fools just like, you know, scrambling around to get their theme parks in order and buy this newspaper and fuck this person over. But when it comes to it, they actually have an incredible amount of power. And they're all, you know, Shiv is, I guess, more complicated in this episode, but like certainly Roman and Kendall are sociopathically greedy. I mean, I think if we're rank ordering, not to go back to my like super ego narrative with Shiv, though I do think it's Gans, I think Shiv is at least, you know, she says if Mencken wins, it's the end of the world, right? She knows that this is bigger than them. Kendall seems like pretty, could go either way, sort of like ineffectual, a little like sad, broody for most of the episode. Then he's got that big scene with Shiv, which we'll get to. And then Roman seems actually purely evil to the point where I sort of felt disgusted with myself forever enjoying him or liking him or having empathy with him. This does bring me to a question, (laughs) which, again, uh, might not be fair to ask, but which Roy is most responsible for Mencken's election? I have sort of a subversive answer to this, but I'm asking you. I mean, outwardly, it's Roman. Yeah, that's fair. Mencken is Roman's boy. But this is a little triumvirate, and there was a swing vote. And it was Kendall who Mm -hmm. didn't make the right choice, despite the fact that his daughter, who is a person of color, has been personally targeted by this stuff. I kind of think he's the bad guy, but maybe, I mean, who do you think? Well, I think, back to my Shiv girl bossing too close to the sun narrative, had Shiv not played both sides and had not threatened Greg in that coat room. How about I offer for you to keep all your internal organs on your insides rather than I pull them out your asshole? Greg, you know, one night out, and this is how, (laughs) I actually do think this is how men work, specifically straight men. You spend one night out with the boys, then you're in the inner circle. Like, Greg does some weird drugs with Lucas. Like that, like a magic trick. Like a magic trick. Like, he just gets drunk and, like, dances with an old man. Drinks things that aren't (laughs) supposed to be drinks. Dance with an old man. Dance with an old man, and now, like, he's, like, basically one of Lucas's, like, boys and he knows that Shiv has been playing both sides and it's just what it's so tragic because and this is why I think I love Shiv so much or that's why I mean they're all terrible we always say that but why I have such empathy for Shiv because she her heart seems to be in the right place and she got caught up in the playing Lucas against her brothers and she did feel really betrayed by them but because she played both sides she had Kendall she had Kendall's vote Kendall was going to say no we're not going to call it we're not going to do that but then once Greg let it slip, and maybe, and maybe it's Greg's fault. Once Greg stabbed Shiv in the back and told Kendall that she's been with Mattson, that's when the light went out of Kendall's eyes, and he said, nothing matters, fuck you, Shiv, we're going with Mencken, to yeah. spite you. Yeah. And that is just like, oh, it's like, Shiv, if you had just <laughs> yeah. not done that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if she had not faked the phone call and, and whatnot. Ugh, the, I mean, The lie of the phone call. And that, I do think, is to the point earlier with the Democrats being positioned as like, not wholly good, but clearly morally better. Like they didn't play ball with Shiv. They didn't, you know, they iced her out once it got sort of like quid pro quo And who knows what other deals that that camp is making with other people we don't meet on the show, but like at least they're not trying to, to do uh, deals with um, the Roy family. I mean, you could also even say if Shiv just hadn't come back into the fold of the family in season one. But I think <laughs> that I think that we have to interrogate the Shiv of it all in, in this episode in a kind of thematic way and that like, Linda Holmes of NPR does succession recaps on NPR site. And she was talking about last week's episode and about how she thinks this season has been very approaching explicit about the sexism in this world. Mm. And I think that like this episode really drives that home totally. where it's like Kendall, Roman, Greg, Tom. Tom, 
everyone is just like, go away, woman. Tom says, oh, you're, you're, ste- you're seeming, what does he say, hysterical or yes. something like that. And he's just found out she's pregnant. And like, I think that this is this larger ethos, this family's, if you want to call it politics, that does, yes, ultimately send the women into forever shopping sprees yeah. in Milan or, or whatever. The loony cake, you know? Right, exactly. The loony cake. About like, that. you know, and I think that I didn't necessarily see the show going this direction, but like this episode, it's inarguable that it is making a point about Shiv's relatively speaking marginalized position in this business and in the family. Yeah. And it's a point that's been made over and over again this season specifically um, with, you know, Kendall taking her seat at the board meeting and the brothers teaming up and icing her out from being CE bros with them. Disgusting brothers is kind of, you know, Mm -hmm. part of that. It's totally part of that. I do think we finally got the answer with, you know, her pregnancy and with the Tom of it all. And that might have been... Tom had a sort of a wild episode, you know, his arch supports, ripping lines. To stay he's on with. coke for three quarters of the episode, yes. we and should remember. T- yeah, yeah. He's literally yeah. Yeah. done bumps yeah. <laughs> with Greg. Um, but his complete lack of a response when he finds out that he, what he always want, what he did want, it's what he said he wanted, was to have a baby with Shiv. For her to say that and for him to think that that was just a tactic, that was a ploy, that was a weapon in her arsenal to get at him was something that again, I think I'm always prepared with the show and then they slapped me across the face. I was not prepared for and was perhaps one of the most despicable things in a really despicable episode that that I saw. And, you know, if you want to get sort of sensitive and woo-woo about it, part of Shiv's panic might be, I'm bringing a kid into this world yeah. and now I'm sitting in the room where maybe the fa- the future, a bad future for this world is being decided. And, like, that's an added desperation. And Tom, who is a jerk, but not the least empathetic person on the show. Yeah, he's not means, unfeeling. Like, he probably some part of him understands that, but he also wants to get back at her, uh, you know, punish her in certain ways, which, again, like, is sort of this exertion of male power. Mm-hmm. And you watch as the episode goes, Shiv fall from this position of power to this position. She's under Greg at this point. She's, yes. Greg has more power, which is... And also, it was honestly kind of wild to remember that Tom has a real job. Like I know we've seen him running around the ATN floor and throwing parties and whatnot. But for him, which I wonder how this will shake out in the next two episodes, for him to sort of be the face of the ATN call at the end, like on the news, because right. that's, he ended up holding the grenade at the end, right? If Because it was really Kendall and Roman who sort of pushed Mencken through. But then on the news, they're saying ATN president Tom, you know, may have made the call too early. Yeah, he's holding the grenade and it's going to explode in his face, which may be good for Shiv that it wasn't her. But it was wild to remember Tom actually is a really important guy. (laughs) Oh, he's vastly powerful and also like really rich in his own right. Like Tom finally kind of seeing him, quote unquote, in his element and how that, I mean, what is Shiv's job? She's on the board of the company, but that's kind of it. That's it. She doesn't have Tom any... Tom has responsibilities in that room. She has no real power. As do Kendall and Roman. They have the say-so. And, you know, I think the, the hypocrisy in terms of the sibling dynamic of Roman, who really has just spun off into complete, you know, Oof. 4chan horror. Yeah. Um, like So him getting mad at Shiv is one thing because they were kind of on opposing agendas, but Kendall in the middle. But, like, Kendall gets really mad, too, and it's like... A few days ago, you completely lied to her about the fact that you were trying to scuttle the deal and then mm-hmm. finally confessed to her in, in the L.A. episode. But like, but they were lying to her in the same exact way that she was lying to them. But they treat it as so much more of a violation. So he calls her dirt. He yeah. says you're dirt, yeah. I think. <laughs> yeah, which she did not say. No. She just kind of was like, you guys are dumb. You're bad liars. And you know what? I think this is a good time to, to transition into that really sort of fantastic Kendall and Shiv scene, mm-hmm. um, which is basically... For better or worse, it was like that was like a therapy session for Kendall. A piece of me wants to not support that, and that's maybe in there, pulling away from Mencken. Uh huh. But also, you're a good guy. Well, I don't know. Sure. Thank you. you. Are. I don't no, know. No, essentially, you're. You're a good guy. He's clearly very conflicted about his daughter, who he never calls or sees, but he does, you know, he is our sad boy prince. He does care about his family, his daughter, and he understands that Mencken and his fascist beliefs would be terrible for the nation writ large. And I also think, too, to sort of bring it back to Logan, 
the way that they were framing it, like, Logan, he did what he wants. You know, he was, like, a bad guy or whatever. But he did have at least, like, some respect for politics, right? He was like, we stay off the floor on election night. We don't go on the floor. Like, that was sort of a rule that the kids kept breaking. But that seemed to be true in the Logan era of this thing. So he knew when to meddle and when to not. And you can feel sort of Kendall wrestling with his daughter, Logan, his sibling dynamics. And he does, I think what actually pushes him over the edge is he was being brutally honest with, he was being so honest and vulnerable with Shiv and she tried to manipulate him into doing the right thing for the world. Right. And when he learned that that she wasn't being genuine and when that was a tactic, he completely shut down and said, fuck it. And I think that it's yet another example of Kendall being rash and short-sighted because his whole thing since season one has been i'm not your granddaddy's future ceo i'm hip i'm cool i went to a liberal arts college and i like i know music references and whatever and i think under that is a genuine interest in I don't know if it's being decent or at least seeming decent. Yes, certainly or, he wants to be one, appear to be one of the good guys, right? I think he knows that he's bad because he did kill someone accidentally. Right. So I think he really wants to prove that he is a decent guy to right. himself more than anyone. And I think that what he is not thinking of in this episode is, well, you have just crossed the Rubicon. Yeah. Now you are co-CEO of a company that did this heinous shit and is openly trying to sway elections. You have alienated your daughter maybe forever. Forever. And probably that also means your son and your ex-wife and anyone else. It brings to mind the sort of stories from early in the Trump administration when Ivanka and Jared were finding it hard to be in New York society because everyone was like, get the fuck yeah. out of here. We I mean, want... there are plenty of horrid Republicans <laughs> in New York society. Yes, don't get me wrong. That is true. But you know what I mean? It's like, no, no, no. You made your choice yeah. and it's a defining choice. And you have to live with that. I mean, Kendall, I think, is realizing that at the end mm-hmm. and he tries to kind of be like, oh, some people don't know how to make a deal. He's yeah. trying to puff himself up. But it's like, okay, now you are forever branded as little Lord Fauntleroy with like fascist tendencies yeah. who they're not going to think he's cool ever. Again. No, no one in the hip hop community yeah. is going to be like down with Kendall anymore. No, he chose right? his side. And the thing that I think is so great about it is that it was purely emotional. It was a purely emotional decision for him. Yeah. Came completely from his ego being bruised and being hurt by Shiv and being felt that he was sort of like made a fool of and betrayed by a sister. I do want to know what you think, what should they have done about the votes in Milwaukee? Like what was like, it seems very clear that they should not have made the call, but I do yeah. think it the show presented, I mean, with Roman and Shiv, like sort of an interesting argument in terms of like, well, you know, are they going to make people vote again? Are they not going to make people vote again? Like, you can't make up votes. We're going to assume that all those votes are Democrat, but they probably were Democratic. I thought that was sort of an interesting thought experiment. She born into this sort of emotionally exhausting episode. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, obviously we had something vaguely similar in the 2020 election where it wasn't called for days. Mm -hmm. And I remember people getting mad at the news and the news was kind of just like, well, we can't call it because we don't know yet. But I don't know. Did that help their ratings? Did people watch cable news for four days longer than they normally Mm -hmm. would have in an election week? Maybe. Maybe. But like, I think in the in the context of this show, they are storytelling and they are putting together a package. And what good is it? It At the end of the night, you don't have a winner. And so they're rushing it. I think the sane thing would have been like, hey, look, there's a very strange, suspicious situation happening in Wisconsin (laughs) in a major swing state. We can call Arizona for him because even Darwin with his wasabi eyes was was able to kind of be like, no, that's that actually he did win Arizona. But Roman for as awful and sort of just lost to the world of, you know, shitposting as he is, like, does correctly see that, like, in order to get Mencken on our side forever... Forever. We need to do something to, for him right now. Yeah. My hunch is that, like, the Mencken thing is not decided. Yeah. When next week's the funeral, yes. as is mentioned. So maybe the finale is the sort of sorting out of, of, of this mess. But, like, I... I don't know. I've never worked at cable news. I don't know how accurate this was. But from a viewer standpoint, 
it certainly felt compellingly accurate. Yes, it did. Where it was like, this is the kind of cynical, I mean, beyond cynical shit that happens because people cannot separate what is nominally supposed to be their job, which is reporting fact and um, infusing it with opinion. You could say the same thing of the left, I'm sure, in certain circumstances, but like... I do think we should talk about some of the more, you know, uh, election night aspects of it from like the touchscreen not working and then the Tucker Carlson character just going off on a diatribe. We'll figure it out and issue you with your new government to march into your homes and take whatever we want in the way of your mechanisms of self-defense and tell your son she's actually your daughter or the other way around. There have been, I've seen online, um, some pretty honestly uh, fair critiques of the show in that like we've we're leading up to this election and we really didn't know how anybody really felt about the politics of our, all these characters. We, we had like some idea of, you know, their political leanings, but it was never really about the, the election. It was more about the family dynamics. And right. this episode, it's so, it gets so political. Um, it brings the world in, in a way that the show has never really yes, done before. The show has kept the world out because for them, the world is just them. The world is yeah. just, you know, their rich enclave of, you know, one yeah. percenters and whatnot. And this brings in, Actual, real people. People who, Roman is like, these peons, you care, we, we care about what these people think. He doesn't give a fuck. Roman <laughs> says nothing's going to happen, and Shiv, with tears in her eyes, says things will happen. Things do happen. Which reminded me of the line in The White Lotus Season 1 where... Where something where bad could have happened. Something bad, and, she, and, and her friend says something bad did happen. Yes. And I think that, like, Shiv saying that is some small voice of the actual show's moral conscience being like, no, no, no we are aware that this stuff affects the actual world and maybe maybe they're doing a little bit of nose rubbing for the audience like us who have gleefully watched this for four seasons and being like these are bad people like if we have not told you this before which we have repeatedly this is catastrophic and people like this maybe not in such grandly dramatic fashion but they do exist in the real world and so getting those election details lent I think helped that sort of messaging yes and ATN is responsible and (laughs) <laughs> There's a good argument for each Roy sibling being responsible, but I do think, as we said, Roman sort of being the outward face, being yeah. in bed with Mencken, because like it or not, Roman does understand that opportunity is not a lengthy visitor and that if they wanted to get in with Mencken, they had to get in right now. And he was the sort of the smoothest and least ruffled of the siblings this whole entire time and ultimately got exactly what he wanted. Yeah. And so I think like Roman's nihilism was like so on display. And I guess we could trace that back to something breaking when Logan died and something. Mm -hmm. It seems like something shifted in him that will never come back. He lost whatever heart he had. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And because of that, was happy to get in bed with Mencken. Um, And he spoke about it in this way that always um, chills my blood in real life where these really ultra-conservative right-wing nuts who are like, you know, women shouldn't work and, you know, gay people are degenerates and should, you know, be mm -hmm. whatever. And black people should be in prison. Yeah. Is they speak about it in this sort of frat boy snide inevitability. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, Roman's like, well, this is just what's happening. It's what's happening. Like, deal with it. Like, you soft, you know, pansies, yeah, whatever. I like, won, you, you lost. Like, yeah. it's it's such bully language. It's such <laughs> playground. Like, it's so horrifying watching Roman speak that because it's a sensation or, or it's, it's words we've read on Twitter or wherever for years now. This it's, kind of sense of, like, this is how the world works. You were so coddled by the Obama years. And actually, this is how most people think. Yeah. And Ugh. we're going to walk all over you. It's so proud boys coded. Yeah. It's yeah. so... Ugh. Physically, I'm having a, a, deep, a deeply reaction. unpleasant episode. I mean, really. I mean, deli- I mean, I think that was the point, and it was they made it well. But like, you and I both watched this episode twice, and it was just yeah. like t- torture both times. Absolutely. Yeah. And I will say, I guess one prediction that seems like it won't come true: <laughs> Connor didn't no. get there. He didn't no. get there, and that was honestly, again, to have empathy for any one of these people feels insane after watching this episode twice. Connor's moment with Willa when he loses Kentucky. Fuck Kentucky gone. No. Yes, fuck. No. I... I shan't become that, no. Alas, Kentucky Willa. Was really, really kind of heartbreaking. But then he gets on camera and he's like, "Uh, I'm a billionaire, sorry about it. Um, Oh, he gives this, like, insane... Crypto libertarian, and then, but I and think I love the support to Menken, and I love the references too. I'd like to say to my first running mate, who I will not dignify with a name check, but had that woman 
not dropped out. And then, had I not had to replace her with another figure who turned out not to be able to bear the weight of public scrutiny, had I not been betrayed by those two jackrabbits, who knows? I mean, the Connor thing was funny. I mean, that was at least some levity because I, I like that the show... I mean, you have Marklin Baker as uh, the Pierce family member who's this sort of like political whisperer who's a lunatic in, in the last episode. And like, I, I think it's it's fun in this episode to be like, they are writing Connor's brand of lunacy so well. So well. This kind it's of like so highfalutin language, but also trying to be down with the people. <laughs> giving a nationally televised political speech where he refers to con heads. Con heads. Like, it's just so embarrassing. Yeah, but America, like, you flunked it. It was... It, but it, I think we needed that little bit of late-night yeah. comedy levity to balance out the horror of what else was happening. Yeah, no, 100%. I think my question about, and maybe we won't see this come to bear because the show's almost over, but, like, you know, kind of mapping it onto the real world, like, okay, so if Mencken becomes president and Roman is his number one guy, head of this media empire, that's a pretty cozy relationship, probably beneficial to both. Mm-hmm. How long can that last? You know, I think it was I- instructive that there were multiple references. I forget the names of the other networks. The more, the more, yes. even more. PGN. No, but the or more right wing ones. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they were like, like they're basically referring oh, and, to yeah. OAN, OAN and Newsmax mm-hmm. as like siphoning off the cra- the real hardline crazies from their slightly more mainstream position. And so, could it be the ATN has to? lean further right or does it mean they alienate Mencken's fans you know I, mm-hmm. I think that like whatever victory Roman feels he's secured here is cert- is definite but it's not permanent well no think. and it's tenuous and it's also there's a lot of trust being put into Mencken it's like Mencken says that he's gonna you know like shut down the deal they shut down the Gojo deal we even talked about the Gojo deal this episode because we right. get so far away from it but we don't know for a fact that that's going to happen no no I mean any number of things could happen it was funny the way when, when things were really reaching ahead as like they were really making the decision whether or not to call it that just Roman just kept saying Gojo deal the Go deal the deal the deal and in the context of what we were, else they were talking about it was like oh my god that thing who that cares feel, that, that feels doesn't so matter. petty and small and like you're rich anyway who cares who cares like, you're going to you're going to put you know millions of Americans at risk for just so that you can like own your company it felt so ugh it, yeah it was exactly it felt like such a an addendum, such like a, a non-starter, such a non-factor in terms of what was really at stake, which Shiv definitely realized. But Roman, that's all that he cares about. That's all that he cares about is, you know, his company and own and making sure that he gets to own Waystar. And that means that Kendall, who is supposed to be hipper, younger, cool or whatever, he has to kind of because he said like to Shiv, like, I'm a little I'm a little jealous of Roman's relationship with Mencken, not because he wants to be besties with Mencken, but he's jealous mm-hmm. of Roman's relationship with the a future power, president. Yeah. I guess Kendall will have to cozy up to this guy. And look, I think Mencken's well cast. I think he's written in such a way. I mean, yeah, that Justin fi- that, Kirk was yeah. he's so he's so good. That it's speech chilling. that Mencken gives. I mean, it's coded. He talks about crowning welfare kings and queens. Don't we long sometimes for something clean? Once in this polluted land, that's what I hope to bring. Not something grubby with compromise. Something clean and true and refreshing. He's a guy we can do business with. Yeah. Something proud and pure. Don't play ball. Chills down my spine. <laughs> I that mean, that's a, so, that's a Nazi. That's a Nazi. That's a Nazi. That's like dirty is diversity is, is black people and brown people and marginalized people. Clean is nice white boys yeah. like Mencken. And that's ch- it's chilling. It's chilling in its poetry and in its coded language and it's the way that you can hear that and not necessarily understand the deeper meaning if you're not paying attention for a reset it's really it's really about white nationalism well yeah i mean you think you know with trump like there was i don't know if i ever believed this 100 percent, but there Mm -hmm. was some argument that like no a certain contingent of trump voters aren't voting out of racial animus they're not voting out of no, it's purely that, financial it's that they just want they don't want a politician yeah they want to shake things up politics and, are you know, terrible and, and look I don't disagree that Washington as it currently exists is like horrible and the Senate should be abolished and all yeah. that stuff mm. but like I don't know that I really believe that the dog whistle of Trump's rhetoric which was always racist was, and, yeah, always, and it was you know, way less poetic than that right. it was way more explicitly I'm racist I think it was heard <laughs> I think it was heard loud and clear by a lot of people yeah. you know and, and Mencken has a little more poetry about him which like 
maybe is more dangerous? I think we're, I felt that it is more dangerous, 100%. And that this, it's sort of like a, a scary portrait of, of what could happen. This could be our future. Yeah. He's not even the banality of evil because he's not banal. He's kind of like arresting and snake-like and interesting and, yeah. and, 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 and kind of smart and kind of, <laughs> yeah. yeah, not an And he's idiot. handsome and, you know, not charming. I wouldn't say charming, but, no. but anyway. Um, he's a guy they can do business with. Um, Chris, I think this might be a good time to take a break. And then when we come back, we'll hear our colleague David Canfield's interview with Justin Kirk, who plays Mencken on the show. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th. Republican presidential candidate Jared Mencken has been a looming presence throughout this season of succession, despite making his first official on-screen appearance here in Episode 8. Actor Justin Kirk plays the far-right politician anointed to lead by the late Logan Roy. And now that America apparently decided, our Vanity Fair colleague David Canfield got a chance to talk about all things succession with Kirk. Here's their conversation. All right, Justin. Oh, sigh. Your succession episode has finally aired for this season. I've been waiting. I saw you in the trailer. Um, There's been buildup. They they talk about me a lot. And it may be better to be talked about than actually be there. Yeah, you're you're one of those characters in the show who exists so is so present for everyone else, and yet for us we really have to to wait for for your scariness to appear. And now you're gonna have to look at my stupid face for a minute. So <laughs> you look wonderful. Mm. Um how was season four first pitch to you when you came on? I showed up for the episode where we're at the conference thing, you know, uh with all the candidates in season three. And that was it. And then the memo said uh possible recur. So of course, once the season ended, I was uh trying to be cool about it. And I would check in with my people every once in a while. And they'd be like, they've reached out to check your availability, but nothing specific at that. <laughs> so, so essentially we just waited to hear if they were going to have us back. And we were delighted when they said they would. So what's it like to film inside of a succession election episode? Because I, I don't know if you've seen it, but for me, that was one of the most stressful hours of my life. <laughs> right. Well, the whole season, the way they're doing the one day at a time thing is uh, is wild. So what was it? Well, let's see. So, uh, yeah, the, the, the acceptance speech, as it were, that was uh, at night in New Jersey. But the scene with Roman in the office was after, was after Christmas break. <laughs> so uh, th- then I went home because I live in Los Angeles. And then I came back in January and did that scene with, uh, with Karen. And my wife and child on the couch, who you don't really see, but other and other people. So with Kieran, I mean, I remember your first scene last season. It, it was it was he was heated. Some would call it steamy. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure where you fall on that scale. Uh, hey, man, I'm always pleased to be uh, identified as steamy. <laughs> You know what's funny about that? So we shot that bathroom scene first. That was the first thing that we that I did. And it was the first time I had been around. I, so I think that an element of the uh, the charged nature of the scene was the, the fact that, at least for me, it was the first time I'd been around human beings in about a year. <laughs> it was my first COVID job. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'd been a pretty good COVID person in terms of, uh, locking it down. And then all of a sudden I fly to New York and I'm doing succession and everyone, we're all in hazmat suits. And at this time, at this point, the protocols on a set were you're in your K95 and your, you know, 
so the dogs don't chew on themselves thing. Uh, and uh, during rehearsal even, and then the cameras roll and the COVID and you hand this shit to the COVID person. So it was very wild. And, uh, I think that probably uh, jacked up the excitement in the scene itself. <laughs> it w- I just remember being surprised. It was kind of mesmerizing to watch. It was like, wow, they came ready. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and he was so cool. He's the nicest guy and he was so welcoming because, you know, it's a behemoth, that thing. And so walking on the succession set is, uh, that's a lot, but they were all very, very welcoming. So I imagine coming back for season four, you had a little bit less uh, protocol to deal with. And so you could see each other's faces. A little. Weirdly enough, uh, (laughs) I had just gotten over my first ever bout of COVID right before the acceptance speech. <laughs> so I had actually gone to New York when I when I knew that I was going to be working on the show. I was like, you know what? I'll just go hang out in New York, see some plays, see some friends, I, even though I didn't know my days. Because I thought other, otherwise you're like flying in the night before and you get in at midnight and you've got a 5 a.m. call. And so I was like, I'll just go chill in New York. And also that way I'll, I'll, I'll be able to stay healthy. <laughs> You know, I'll be on planes all the time. And so much for that. Two days before I was I was set to shoot that big speech, uh, I tested positive for the first time in three <laughs> in three years. And uh and got, you know, pretty sick, but you know, not terrible. But uh and then it was over and the, and including losing my voice. Uh so that was scary. Um and then uh, but then got over it and then we did it and now it's all all in the past with Mencken he's such a looming presence in this show as we were talking about I'm curious if you had like a model for him or or how you thought of him particularly in an episode like this where he is in an episode that is mirroring to some extent some particularly terrifying real world events (laughs) yeah or it's funny the first time the first episode I did in season three, I remember saying to uh, Jesse Armstrong or maybe Andre, the director, this guy may not currently exist, but it feels like he will any second. (laughs) So in other words, he's an interesting figure. He's like a far right guy. And yet, at least in that first episode, He's kind of pointy headed, you know, like he's not he doesn't play to the lowest common. He's, he's not Lauren Boebert or Tommy Tuberville or something. So uh, he's, I think, what could be and sort of what is. And yet I don't know if there's a particular individual that he's ba- based on. I think, you know, succession exists in a in a weird parallel, but but real universe. What with the raisin, right? That was my predecessor, the raisin. <laughs> Yes, the raisin. Yeah. Um, so how did you get into preparing for the the big speech? Um, there's We've seen many a victory speech. So, and this show has a certain verisimilitude, but. The other weird thing about that, of, of course, is like I had to sort of figure out, because I was in a room essentially alone, you know, or with a, with a sparse camera crew. And then it's like, well, am I, is this the thing where there's hundreds of my supporters here and to what degree do I pitch this, you know, but otherwise, you know, you just try to sort of <laughs> know it. It's such a bizarre thing to be giving a presidential acceptance <laughs> speech. It's, it's kind of weird. It's really weird. It's really weird. But um, if they said I could do it, then that was some sort of empowering thing. And I, I believed it, that I could <laughs> be that guy, you know? What did the set look like that day? Because, you know, everyone's coming in and out of rooms and it felt like, you know, Kieran Kieran Culkin's in the strategy room and then he's suddenly with you. Like, what do you remember about navigating the space? Well, he, that was in a hotel. Well, our scene was in a hotel and story-wise, I know he's, you know, he gets in a car to come see me. The, uh, The acceptance speech, I think I'm right about this, was in the CNBC headquarters in New Jersey. <laughs> uh, so that was a different, that was a different place. And it was always wild for me on those days to walk around. Cause I'd see pictures of me, you know, campaign pictures of me <laughs> running for president. 
<laughs> that must be a new kind of acting experience for you to see your face everywhere <laughs> while you're performing. The best thing about, at least so far in my life as an actor, is that you almost never could have predicted the the specifics of each gig. I never would have thought I would have <laughs> played this part, uh, but that's what's fun. Um, well, I know you can't uh, give anything away slash... Um... I'm not sure how much you're keeping up, but do you have a, a prediction for who's going to be running things at the end? We've been asking a few people that. Oh, all in terms right. Of the company. Right. Well, let's go wild card and say Hugo. <laughs> that's, that's fun. I love that. That's fun. <laughs> Honestly, I'm crossing my fingers for Hugo now. Sure. Or I, I, we didn't see Jerry last episode, but you know she's always a possibility, right? I don't, yeah. The other fun thing is about doing the, that show when you're a guest is that I only read stuff that I was in so I can keep enjoying it as a person on, uh, in front of my television. Uh, and I know some stuff and I, there's a lot of stuff I don't. You're, 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 in, you're in the dark right with us. Yeah. Thank you to our colleague, David Canfield. Still watching, we'll be back in just a moment. And when we return, we'll dive into our mailbag and try to figure out how it will all end. I'm Richard Lawson. I'm Chris Murphy. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast, a weekly television podcast that obsesses over all things TV. Chris, Hillary, and I are at your service to recap and analyze the best that's out there and what you should be watching. Plus, we're talking to the stars and showrunners about how exactly it all got made. New episodes of Still Watching drop weekly wherever you listen to podcasts. Chris, as you well know, we have an email address, stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. Absolutely. We like to take time, if we can, to open up that mailbag, see what's inside. Chris, what have we got this week? All right. Uh, this week, so I'm going to start with a little bit of a, a correction, an apology to... What? We never make mistakes. Ne- I've, never, I've never made a mistake no, in my entire no. life, except when pronouncing uh, David Rashi's name. Thank you to Larry in Seattle for pointing out that it is David Rashi. Who plays Carl. Who plays Carl. Yes. Yeah. Um, so thank you, Carl. Great work this week, as always. Um, but then we also got an interesting email sort of about... Uh, the show and sort of who's going to stab who in the back. And it actually had some foresight given what happened this episode. It was, there was uh, pretty, uh, some soothsayer energy from Caroline in Miami. Okay. She said, I could picture Shiv trading Kendall's dark, horrific secret for her brother's silence on Matson's falsified numbers or Kendall's total demise, clearing the path for Matson to potentially acquire Waystar. Episode after episode, we've seen it come down to Shiv versus Kendall in a bid for their father's approval, and of course his crown. Roman certainly has his moments, but the rivalry between older brother and sister has always had a more sinister, knife-at-the-ready feel to it. Then it, Caroline says, I could also envision a scenario where Shiv gives up the secret to clear the path for Matson's takeover, and then Matson, true to his nature, walks back his promise to Shiv and uh, doesn't give her a job in the company. I got to say, Caroline, you really hit on the Shiv uh-huh. versus Kendall dynamic that was yeah. so at play this episode. Yeah. And also she brings up something that we hadn't really gone into in our recap of this episode, which is the last thing we see Shiv doing in this episode is calling Matson. She still thinks she's got skin in the game. And yeah. I mean, she do, you know, like she thinks there's still some maneuvering to be done. She might not be wrong. She might not be wrong. You know, she, I don't know if the show really wants to go there, but like, Shiv knows her brother killed someone. Yeah, no, she she does. <laughs> you know, and if someone like Matson were to find out who controls, you know, social medias and whatever, like that could be a thing. And maybe that is like the most tragic end, and that like yeah. to save the country, Shiv has to sell Kendall down the river and give up, you know, his big deep dark secret. I mean, I don't know how, you know, Kendall going to prison might stop Mencken, but I could see a scenario where Shiv feels that literally the soul of the nation is in her hands and that she has to stop her brothers by hook or by crook by any means necessary and tells Manson that, hey, Kendall's got some bodies in the closet. Yeah, maybe Shiv will become the sort of avenging hero and uh, destroy everything, including herself, but to save America. Yeah. I, I don't know if I see the show going that grandiose, <laughs> yeah. but I think that America Caroline is right to, to, I mean, yes, she was prophetic in a way, but also like Matson is still very much an unknown entity. He was definitely a smaller role this episode. I mean, it was, he was watching the returns for yeah. sure um, because he does have skin in the game, but 
I also feel like it is a stretch to think that like Madsen is going to come in and like save the day, right? No, no, I don't think he's been set up that way. <laughs> I mean, who the fuck knows? That would be that would be a really cynical like Deus Ex Ma- Madsen or whatever, where it's like. Yeah. The horrible tech freak is actually the only person who can can save us, you know. Uh, Yeah, that feels like way too too bleak and not not possibly true. Um, Uh, But listen, we um, have the penultimate episode next then the finale. So we want to hear from you guys about, you listeners, about any like loose ends from any season you want to see tied up. Yes. Anything like that. We'd love to kind of get a little grab bag of that stuff. Um, Still watching pod at gmail.com because... Um, you know, we're almost at the end, Chris. We're, yeah, we got we got two more. And I guess we should say two. Next week you're you'll be away. Uh, I'm very fabulous. So I'm going to the Cannes Film Festival. <laughs> Have you for heard work, of it? for work. <laughs> um so I will unfortunately not be on next week's episode. I will be back for the finale. In the meantime, our great colleague Joy Press, Chris will be joining you. Yes. She's done some interviews with us yes. over the season. And so. she did an amazing profile on Matthew McFadden yeah. for yeah. her magazine. So she's a deep succession head. You're all in good hands while I I'm sorry, I have to say it's Cip Rosé on the Riviera. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and I, I guess occasionally so see a movie <laughs> and write a review. Tough uh, life, yeah. tough life, tough yeah. life, really. Yeah. Uh, Cannes is the one time of the year I can almost dimly sort of relate to the wealth we see on this show. I was going to say, if you run into Shiva Romans. <laughs> yeah. I do have a, a funny Cannes story. I don't know. We can cut this at some point if we want to, or we can keep it in. But um, I was at a dinner a couple years ago in Cannes, and I had locked myself out of my Airbnb in my tuxedo, Ooh. but I had to go to this fancy dinner, this awards dinner thing. And so I was just like sitting at this dinner in my bad, cheap tuxedo, just being like, oh, my God, I'm, what am I going to do? I ended up having to stay in a hotel that yeah, night. Glamorous. And But anyway, this man was sitting next to me and I was kind of telling him what happened. He was like, oh, well, that's too bad. You no, know, I stay in my apartment that I own here. And I was like, oh, OK. I didn't want him to like offer me a couch yeah. or anything. And then I was like, yeah, it's just been a stressful trip. You know, like I couldn't get the direct to Nice. So I had to like do this long layover in Paris and it was just awful. And he was like, well, see, I'm lucky because I own my own plane. Ah, oh my God. And then I looked him up later and he's worth $6 billion because he is the son of Estee Lauder. And I demand that that stays in this episode because that yeah. is so in yeah. keeping. So that's with... the closest I've ever come to Succession is that one conversation while I was locked out of my Airbnb. And that plane was used on Succession by Shiv. That does it for this episode of Still Watching. Please, again, send us your questions, concerns, feelings of injustice, final thoughts uh, at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. Or you can find me, for the time being, on Twitter at Rylaws, R-I-L-A-W-S. And you can find me on Twitter at Christress, C-H-R-I-S-T-R-E-S-S. This has been Still Watching from Vanity Fair. Our producer is Emily Elias, and we had production help from Peyton Hayes. We had technical assistance from Gabe Quiroga. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. And our theme music is by Alexis Quadrado. We'll be back next week for Episode 9. Looking forward to seeing you then. Organized a little coup down in old Peru. Put me in a van to Tajikistan. Couldn't I just be our fun guy in Uruguay? Your rhymes are compelling, but what's in it for him, come? I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Mm -hmm.